We're going to continue with part four of our series, uh, God in the City. We'll be in Luke 19, 28 through 44. Uh, there'll be a, a, a side mark. We're going to look again at Philippians 2. So Luke 19 and Philippians 2 are the two scriptures that we'll be checking out uh, this morning. So as I mentioned, we are in week four of this series, and I really wanted to thank Pastor Chris Nixon for bringing a challenging and encouraging word to us last weekend. If you haven't heard it yet, and that might be the case because many of us were missing uh, last week, if you haven't heard it yet, it's well worth the the listen, and it's a message about the urban contexts that God has entrusted us to steward as followers of Jesus and the unspeakable joy and delight that comes when we make a choice to steward those contexts well. So it's the realization that God has put us in a place to do a certain thing, and when we steward what he's given us in the city really well, there's great, great joy that comes. Amen? Amen. So I've entitled today's message, part four of the series, Love is the Longest Road. And it's a teaching uh, from a familiar Holy Week passage of Scripture when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. But it's got an urban emphasis to it. Two Sundays ago, I got a call from uh, a friend in our congregation. And during that call, I received one of the greatest nuggets of encouragement uh, to date at our time at South Everett Foursquare. And, and he called me. And we've been doing a lot of running around in the city and engaging folks from all different walks of life. And he said to me, you know, when the Lord brought you to our church, you began commenting about the Lord's desire to move us out of our places of comfort. I'm like, okay. And and he said, uh, you know, before you came, I wasn't using the word uncomfortable very much. And now I find myself using that word all the time. And I thought, well, this is going one of two ways. Either this person is about to pack up and go somewhere else or they're ready to dig in. And he he said, "Um, I need training. I want more training. I want to know how to approach the complex situations that our cities present to us. That's what he said. I'm ready to lean in and be a better steward, an even greater steward of the city where God has placed me. And I thought, this is awesome. And God will move us out of places of comfort. That's one of the passages in the Gospels that makes me so uncomfortable is the one that we're going to be looking at today. Well, how come? Because in accounts like these, Jesus models certain actions and attitudes that are contrary to my human nature. I read what's happening in Scripture, and I thought, boy, if I were going to do what Jesus just did, I'd be really uncomfortable. I might even be upset, because this isn't going the way that I would want it to go. And he's asking me to extend more grace and have more understanding and greater compassion and get further down into the mess and the muck of the life of another. How come? Because it's exactly where he found me. But I'm human. And once I get up out of the muck in the mire and the Lord sets my feet upon a rock and he says that he does, sometimes I start to like it up there on the rock because it's sunny and it's warm And I have to deal with all the chaos that I used to deal with. But the Lord said, I put you up there to stay there. I put you up there to be transformed and go back to prove and show to others that God transforms. And all throughout Scripture, Jesus will heal somebody or do something to somebody. And the people will be like, wait, who's that again? Like, wasn't that the blind guy? Wasn't that the demon-possessed man? Wasn't that the the lady that, that, wasn't her daughter dead? But we keep going back to those places again because it's the work that God does in our life that proves the goodness of God in the first place. 
because we are changed. I am changed. When I get around people from high school, they say, excuse me, what do you do? What? Do you, what? <laughs> how are you spending your days? Because that's not how you were back then. And I'm like, yeah, because God made me different. So we have this chance to go to more uncomfortable places. Jesus is quite selfless in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. But I've often got my own self-interest in, in the thing that's best for me front and center when I'm making decisions. Can anyone say the same? That you make decisions that are heavily influenced by your comfort? Yes, we still do that. And we're a work in progress. And that's why I need to be reconciled to the Lord every single day. So a question, why an eight-week series on the work of God in a city? It's because God is at work in the city, and he desires his people to be in the city working with him. People are moving from rural contexts to urban contexts all over the world at unprecedented rates. That's been one of the premises of this series, is that things are changing in the world, and we've got some stats In 1900, 119 years ago, there were 1.6 billion people that lived on the planet, and 8% of those people lived in cities. 8%, 1.6 billion people. 19 years ago, 100 years later, 50% of the world was living in cities. 50% of 6.1 billion people. Think about how the world is growing, how many more people are here. Today... With 7.7 billion people on the planet, 55% of those people live in cities. And this mentor of mine who wrote this book and many others, a theology as big as a city, a man who spent many years in Chicago, moved there from rural Washington, Acme, near Mount Baker. And he moved into inner city Chicago in 1965, and he saw 160 nations represented in one square mile neighborhood. In the school district, the Chicago public schools were teaching in 11 different languages in 1965 in inner city Chicago. And the things that he saw that terrified him gave him, moved him into this crisis of faith And it drove him back to the word of God for the answers. So get this. Here's a man who grew up in Sunday school in rural farmland, Washington. And he read his Bible like every other good boy read his Bible in the 1940s, growing up in Acme, Washington. He read his Bible enough that it said you should, you know, maybe go out and love your neighbors yourself and maybe seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. And so he said, I'm going to go out and do this. And when he got there, it was harder than he anticipated. But that's what the Lord does with us. He takes us into things that are harder than we anticipate. And it drove him to a place where he said, if God doesn't know what's happening in cities, because what's happening in cities is crazy, and I'm actually wondering, does God know what's happening in cities? He went back to the word of God with the context, the understanding, the places that he'd been in when he heard about orphans and widows and healings and wars and famines. And homeless people, he goes, I know names of folks like that. It's not just orphans and widows. It's people with real names. And it inspired him to do great, great work in cities. He believes that the Bible starts, and it does. It's, it's a thing that's there that I didn't see until we started talking about it. But the garden, the Bible starts in a garden. The Garden of Eden. And Ray acutely points out that the Bible ends in a city. The New Jerusalem. And he goes, well, the world is moving to cities. God is moving towards cities. Cities is the plan. It's where it's at. And so it's interesting to hear him talk about that, to see it in Scripture, and then to see um, 
National Geographic, of all things, dropped a magazine in my mailbox at the beginning of this month, and it's just called Cities. Cities. Ray also says that to be a missionary in the city, you got to do two things when you get up and have your cup of coffee in the morning, when you read. He says, you got to have the Bible in one hand, and you got to have the newspaper in the other. Because what's in the newspaper will help you understand what in the Word needs to be applied to what's going on in the world. Right? If the world is curious about cities, if the world is curious about sexuality, if the world is curious about immigration, if the world is curious about all the things that the world is curious about, if we're not speaking up with the truth that has always been in God's Word, Gabe Lyons from Q says that the world will just think that God has nothing to say about the greatest struggles of the, the society that we're living in. And that's fundamentally untrue. The Lord, his word, every answer we need is there. We just have to grapple with it and go after it. Amen? Amen. So here we are with this God. What draws me to cities? It's the same thing. We already mentioned because God's at work in the city and his desire is for followers of Jesus to spend time there or to live there. So by 2050, we've got a graphic that we can throw up here. This was really interesting because this is in this Time Magazine article. It says, by 2050, if you can't see it, I'll just read it to you. The world's population is expected to reach 9.8 billion people by 2050. Nearly 70%, 6.7 billion people are projected to live in urban areas. And so we asked these urban architects, how would... It, how would that architecture firm design the city of a future? And it's interesting because it started talking about all these areas of shalom and flourishing and that to have shalom, to have peace in the city, it means that all the systems of the city have to be working rightly because cities, as Ray has said, are systems of grace that God has designed cities, systems of common grace. Systems are made up, or cities are made up of transportation systems, education systems, healthcare systems, sewer systems, social systems. And so each of us, if we are a kingdom of heaven on earth and we're a part of seeing the functioning well, it's not just the salvation of souls. In the end, it's for salvation of souls because that's the only thing that's going with us. But to help prove this goodness of God to get to that place where people are ready to give their hearts to Christ to be transformed... We need good working systems. We need people well-educated. We need people well-fed. We need people with good working health that can get around. And so we're a part of that. And it's interesting that as part of that system of shalom, this firm mentions things like ecology and water and energy and livability and waste and food and mobility and culture and heritage and infrastructure and economy. Well, I'd be hard-pressed if anyone in this room couldn't find where their vocation every day of the week attaches to one of those words emboldened up there somehow. Because I just started thinking about the electricians that we have in our church and the real estate agents that we have in our church and the home design uh, specialists that we have in our church and the bus drivers in our church and the guy in our church that works against Internet bank fraud. All of these things contribute to the shalom and flourishing of the city, and we're all attached to it somehow. 
Isn't that exciting to see that there's a theology that says we can be in the city doing good works alongside the city so that the city might point to God and give him the glory? Matthew 5.16. It all comes back together. There's another article in here that I was reading from Pulitzer Prize author and professor of the- uh, geology at UCLA. His name is Jared Diamond, and he put it this way in an article. He said, urban life involves trade-offs. We may be gain big benefits in returns for suffering big disadvantages. In cities, we trade individual freedoms for greater community interests. The more the world moves to cities, the more advantages there are, but the more challenges there are. So there's trade-offs. And what really struck me, and I think it would be unfair to say that Jared Diamond was making any sort of theological statement when he said this. It would be grossly out of context, in fact, if we were to say, well, he was speaking about Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But I kind of think he was sort of when he made this statement. In cities, we trade individual freedoms for greater community interests. On Palm Sunday, Jesus entered a city. And he traded individual freedoms for the greater interests of all mankind. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what Jesus did when he came into the city. He gave up all sorts of individual freedoms for the good of those who lived in the city. Chris read it this morning during worship, but we'll read it again. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 12 In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Individual freedoms. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He gave up greater individual freedoms. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, individual freedoms for the greater community good, It's incredible how God and cities work together. Isn't it amazing that when we come together, and there's nothing wrong with roaming the countryside and getting out to Wyoming or Montana or even just down to the water to be in great open spaces. I love open spaces. We should celebrate and retreat to open spaces, but generally the Monday through Friday, the 9 to 5 grind, guess what, fellas, ladies, cities. It's what's happening, and God is in it, and he calls us to go into it with him. Jesus rode into a city himself in the fullness of man. He would take up the sins of a dying world to restore a deeply coveted relationship with his children. That's what Palm Sunday is about. God came into a city. Main point today, Jesus loved cities and its citizens to the point of anguish. It wasn't just like, oh, I like going into the city. He loved cities to the point of anguish, and we'll read about that in a minute. He did so knowing that the city and these citizens who were blinded by hypocrisy, this is the crazy part, he knew it ahead of time. 
that the city and its citizens, as they were blinded in their own sin, would reject him, as Tyrone was saying a minute ago, and ultimately they would take his life. And he still went. Isn't that remarkable? That many people go as missionaries. Tyrone goes as a missionary. Todd goes as a missionary. Our City Life students go as missionaries into Mariner High School and Cascade High School and Voyager Middle School and all these places right around here. And they're thinking, man, if I, if I stand up for my faith, I might, I might get rejected a little bit. Someone might make fun of me a little bit. Jesus knew that the city was going to kill him, and he went anyways. We know that we might deal with some sort of retribution for living out our faith in the city. But Jesus knew it was take his life, and he went anyways. So Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem is recorded in all four Gospels. It's that important. Not a whole lot of events. Some of them, most of the Passion Week stuff is recorded in the Gospels. But here he comes into a city on Palm Sunday, the week in advance of the weekend that he would die on the cross. This morning we'll be looking at this extremely pivotal moment in the history of our faith through Luke's account, Luke 19, if you have your Bible. If you don't, it'll be up on the screen right behind us. This is Luke 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke. There we go. Luke 19. Forgot my bookmarks this morning. Luke was a doctor. That was his trade. That was his vocation. He was part of the health care system. He was a doctor. He was not a disciple like some of the gospel writers. He wasn't one of the twelve, but he did travel with Paul on his missionary journeys, and he wrote the gospel of Luke. And then he also wrote the book of Acts. So those two books are in tandem with each other. The book of Acts tells of the early church and how it spread around all over the original uh, places and, and, and around the Dead Sea and the Red Sea and all those places where the Bible went forward and the Mediterranean Sea and all the cities. It tells the story how the gospel expanded in all of those places. But he wrote because he was a doctor, uh, both detailed and orderly accounts Luke's account shows that he was deeply familiar with the context, the Greco-Roman context. So it says that he wasn't a, a, a Hebrew necessarily like Matthew who spoke to the Jews about Jesus. He was someone that said there's people out there that haven't never heard this message yet. I'm going to get really familiar with their culture because I am one. They, they, they believe that Luke was a Gentile and he said, well, let me go to the Gentiles and let me go to the people who are unfamiliar with this message of the gospel and teach to them. And that's important for us because most of us are Gentiles in this room. Because of the blood of Jesus, we were included into God's Hebrew family. And he was so passionate about what he'd received that he went out and shared it with other people. My friend Jason in the room over here in the red, I'm going to point you out for just a sec because I love you. This is a man being transformed by Jesus before our very eyes, just like all of us. And there isn't a single guy in this congregation that has been so desperate because of what God has done for him to invite as many people to come and participate in what's going on here than Jason. Jason, you live this out because you're desperate for it. You're saying, we got to get more people understanding that there is a way out of this death and this sickness. So thank you for being a disciple who so desperately loves Jesus that you can't help but share it with everyone that crosses your path. Thank you for being a guy like that. 
Let's all get to that point of desperation that we say we can't help ourselves but to share the gospel with people. That was Luke. That was Luke. Multiple times throughout Luke's gospel, in chapters 10 and 13 and 18, there's these foreshadowings that Luke just kind of drops in there. And he says, oh, by the way, God's on the way to the city. And he's doing this, but he was on his way to Jerusalem. Oh, and God's moving towards the city. He just drops these little foreshadowing clues like a good movie along the way. But in real time, there's no way that the disciples could have fully understood the mission of what the rabbi was unfolding before them. They couldn't have known in real time. We have the benefit of we've heard that story. And sometimes we get a little lazy with it because we heard it. But they're living this thing out real time, taking one step after another, after the plan that God has called these people to. And we say, well, how do I be a part of that? Listen to the Lord and do what he says. You know, Todd and Tyrone started on this road two decades ago. Every day they probably lay their heads down. I'm starting to lay my head down too and thinking, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? We can live the same way because that God who was who he was back then, that Jesus Christ, well, Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same God that did it then is doing it now, and he includes us in the process. We can do the same sort of stuff where you go to bed nervous and at night and you're stressed out and anxious, and then the peace of God that transforms and extends past all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We can live this way. Wondering what the next step is, who the next person that the Lord's going to lead across our path is. We can do this. We are doing it in lots of ways, in lots of different places. But here's these disciples blindly falling in faith after Jesus. There were clues, however, that they were heading towards the cities, and they knew it because some of them had read their Hebrew Bibles. They'd heard that a suffering servant would come from Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah Isaiah chapter 49 and Isaiah chapter 53, they'd all gone to Hebrew school. They knew that a suffering servant would come. And here he is. He's in their midst. They don't even know it. They knew that he would suffer humiliation and rejection. He'd be pierced and then led to the slaughter. And after all of that, he would rise again. This was prophesied. Jesus knew the pain. This is our point. He knew the pain that would come to him in the city. And he went anyways. For the sake of love, he continued along the long road the Father had marked out for him. The long road. We've been talking about this term urbanization, and that simply means what are the values and the norms and the things that a city, an urban context, spins out. Cities create all sort of cultural norms and just spin them out in the suburbs and into urban suburban and rural places values get spun up and spun out in cities and here's jesus he came into the city to amplify this brilliant message to spin out a new cultural value in the epicenter of all things related to god for thousands of years and that message that new cultural norm that he was spinning out simple god's loves for everybody the Jews and the Gentiles alike. There isn't a single person on this planet that is outside of the grasp of God and he's patient, desiring all to come to repentance. That's the message. That's why he went into a city to spin it out. Because from the city it went all over. 
the first century Judaism world. It just went all over the place to little cities, and they got spun out in letters in other places, in hubs and ports. And the message of God's, God's love for us extended even to here on Casino Road in South Everett. It extended all the way because cities amplify the message of God. That's the good news of Palm Sunday, that all people would receive exactly the help they needed. This is the interesting part. It wasn't the help that they wanted. Hosanna! Glory to God in the highest. We're so thankful that you're here. You're just going to wipe out our enemies all the time. This time it's the Romans. I just need you to come down here. I need you to wipe them off the face of the planet. Give us their stuff and we'll follow you again. Just wipe them out, Lord. Just, 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 just give it to them. Right? That's the kind of help that they wanted. It was the kind of help that they were used to. If you read the Old Testament scriptures, the Israelites were a mess like I am. I like to read about God's people because I'm just as jacked up as they are. They follow the Lord for a minute, and they see something shiny like an idol, and then they worship it. Then they get overwhelmed by their sin and their shortcomings and their oppressors. Then they say, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do this again. And then 10 minutes later, they're doing it again. Anyone like that? Good, me too. <laughs> so this was con- this, this, these patterns of behavior were continuing, and they wouldn't end. But they needed a different kind of help. They needed a humble help. They needed a God who was humble that would come and take their place. Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, what was he saying? Well, he was having a conversation with Zacchaeus, the filthy tax collector that had his heart transformed for Jesus right before the eyes of the whole community. He had that conversation. Then he had another conversation with his disciples about stewarding the resources that he'd been given to them to work in the cities with. He had that conversation. It was what Pastor Chris Nixon talked about last week, stewarding the talents that are given to us. She said this. It's been kind of resonating, echoing in the chambers of my soul all week when Chris Nixon said last Sunday, the use we make of what we have been given is the measure for our capacity for more. The use we make of what we've already been given is the measure for our capacity for more. We are to be stewards of what God has given us to do the work he's called us to do in the city. Stewards of our voices. Stewards of hospitality, Jason Roberts. Here's my friend. You want to come? You want to come? Let's come. Let's be in community together. That's being a good steward. Didn't even cost you anything. Hmm. So he's having these conversations. After Jesus had said this, he went ahead, going up to Jerusalem, as he approached Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you and enter it. You will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Interesting, the first place... In this gospel, that Jesus refers to himself as the Lord, the deeper they got into the plan, the more he revealed. The Lord needs it. I'm sorry, who? The Lord. I'm the Lord. He's just starting to make these confessions, these bold confessions, bold yet humble confessions. Verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found the colt, just as they had told him. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? Like, this was just kind of a different thing going on. Sometimes 
the Lord asks us to do weird things. Like, well, the plan is to go and tie this donkey right now? I don't understand that. The Lord did. They replied, the Lord needs this colt. They brought it to Jesus through their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Now, Jesus had been stirring up a frenzy, and this was the culminating event. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're nervous now because someone else is coming in real power. Not religious, false power. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones would cry out. They understood that. It's a reference to the Old Testament. As he approached, this is really interesting. As he approached the city, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you'd only known what would have brought you peace. I feel like the Lord says that to me sometimes. Chris Pepler, if you'd only known what would have brought you peace. Grieves the heart of God. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Grace and truth. A God who grieved and a God who I would suggest in this particular passage has become quite angry over the lack of understanding, the lack of perception of his people. And I, I'm quite sure the Lord is that angry with me sometimes because of my lack of perception, my lack of insight, my propensity to worship idols. <sighs> I'm sure he's quite angry. You ever see anything in the news recently that makes you angry about the cities you live near? I ain't going to that city. Como told me it's dying. I ain't going in there. You know what happens down there? I ain't going into that city. These people are a mess. The Lord saved me from that mess. He put my feet on a rock. I ain't going back down there. I am set. But here's the Lord, right? Who gave up every individual freedom for the greater good of the the community at large, humbles himself, puts himself on a donkey, and goes into the city. A couple observations about this text. Going back to the context in which Jesus was riding into the city in the first place, sometimes the nonverbal cues are the loudest ones. Wait, I think I've heard about this at some point, someplace, somewhere because beyond the prophetic foreshadowing that we found in the book of isaiah about the suffering and the piercing and the dying and the raising again that prophet 700 years before the coming of jesus told of his death and his resurrection and the salvation for all of mankind isaiah did that but there's more 
Zechariah, another prophet, in Zechariah 9.9, see, this is the Hebrew Bible. Those who were gathered around this king on a colt coming into the city would have known exactly what was taking place. Because Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the full of a donkey. This is playing out right in front of them. Wait, I've heard this before. You saw the image up there. A humble man coming on a humble colt, not a, a king with a chariot and a big horse, Clydesdale. None of that. That is how we find the kingdom of heaven, like children. That's how we find it. That's where we get it. That's who he is. And it's how we're redeemed. I love this. Charles Swindoll, in a commentary about this passage, said Jesus could have walked to Jerusalem as he had done countless times before. He could have done the, the, the journey all the way up from Jericho, all the way up from Bethany, all the way from Galilee. In Galilee and all the places where he was, he could have walked. He'd done it a thousand times, three times a year for 33 years. So, 99 times, maybe not a thousand. Jesus could have walked to Jerusalem as he had done countless times before. He mounted the animal because this trip down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and into Jerusalem was different. This was different. The triumphal entry of Jesus to the capital city of the Jews marked a change in his relationship to the ancient seat of Israelite power and religion. He no longer visited as a worshiper, Charles Swindoll says. He claimed the city as king and the temple as God's ultimate high priest. That's what was different about this one trip, was that he wasn't a worshiper anymore. He was the king, the humble king. Wait, I think I've heard this before. It's resonating with the people. And there were guests in their own hometown. This is the thing. Dating back to the fall of Judah in 586 B.C., we've talked about it. It's where these scriptures come from. When, when, when the people of God were sent to Babylon because of their idolatrous ways. And their city was ransacked and the temple was destroyed. Dating all the way back to that date, 600 years before Jesus rode into the city, the Jews had had landlords in their own town. Wouldn't it be awful to have a house that you owned that was run by a landlord that told you what to do all the time? And broke down your cultural ways and your worship of the Lord? There was no worship going on. There was no true worship in Jerusalem at this point. There weren't spirit-filled festivals. They were all whitewashed tombs and religious ceremonies. And Jesus came and he'd spoken to that and nobody listened. Israel needed a, a change, like a, a real change. And a king on a colt, the foal of a donkey, was just the kind of change that was necessary for the city to be different wasn't another military leader. It wasn't what they were looking for, but that's okay. He gave the people a kind of help that they needed. And I know that the help that I need, the real help that I need, is often very contrary to what I want. But that's okay because the help I need came at the cost of the flesh of the one who gave me the help to begin with. He gave it all. He died on a cross. It's what we celebrate this week. He left a door open that remains open. I might go into a city 
and spend my time with people and addicts in recovery and give my valuable times. I got things to do, places to be. I might give that time of all of them just keep their act together and don't mess up anymore because that's my valuable time. And we'll look like I missed it up again. What if I have to go into a city and serve people even if they don't keep all their stuff together? Well, that's a pretty good thing because I can't even keep my stuff together. Jesus went even though people would reject him. He still went. What is our attitude towards cities? Will we go if not everybody comes to know the Lord right away? If we have to give our lives, if we have to make the greatest sacrifices and people still spit in our face, will we go? Or will we let our hearts be overcome with bitterness as opposed to compassion because Jesus was angry? He said to these people, if you only knew what would have brought you salvation, then man, you're blind. But then he wept. He didn't walk away. He wept with compassion over the city, and then he went and died for it. Ah, it's frustrating, because now i got to do that. Because that's what he said. He said in Philippians, may your attitude be that of Christ Jesus who set down all the personal gains for the good of the greater community. How much longer than the road from Bethany to Jerusalem, which was two miles, from Jericho to Jerusalem, which was ten miles, from Galilee to Jerusalem, which was the better part of 50 miles, I think. Fact check that for me. But it was longer. How much longer were any of these roads than the road that Jesus traveled for those he chose to die for. How far down that road did he come to get me in 1991? He went, that was a long journey down the road to find where I was at. The road of love is the longest road. He's patient with me on my journey towards repentance. So questions for us as we close this morning. Does the pain in my community that I live in and work in, in my city, does it compel me towards a kind of grief that is marked by action? Does my heart break for a neighborhood in such a way that says, I might not be able to fix it all, but I'll be darned if I'm not a part of some kind of solution. Does that what makes the headlines in the newspaper make me think? Am I grieved over the things that grieves the heart of God? Do those things that I see remind me of how far the Lord has brought me? And does it make me promptly investigate the places in my life where I need to confess and give back to the Lord all of my shortcomings, confess them, and then celebrate the goodness of God? I tell you what, celebration on Sunday is much better if we grieve on Friday. And not just grieve his loss, but grieve the fact that his loss came because I couldn't keep my stuff together. So that's why I'm coming Friday night. When I was 19, I was really good at celebrating Easter. I loved Easter. And I was just kind of coming around in my faith, and my mom said, hey, you coming to Good Friday service? I'm like, nah, we're going to a movie. And she looked at me, she goes, how can you possibly celebrate Sunday when you won't take time to recognize what happened for you on Good Friday? And I, and I haven't missed a Good Friday service yet, not because it's religious. Don't come because you feel like you have to. Come because your sin has grieved you to the point that you want to celebrate the goodness of redemption, but you can't do it without grieving it first. Let's do that together. Let's repent. Let's mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
we're mourning the greatest thing that ever came, which was our spiritual poverty. I can't do this without him. And boy, the celebration will be sweeter on Sunday if the lamenting is stronger on Friday. Give yourself some time in these passages of Scripture this week because this is about kingdom investments. What's in our hands? Chris Nixon asked us last week, what's in our hands? Well, grace is there. We can invest that into the lives of other people. Jesus loved the city and its citizens even to the point of anguish. He wept over the city and then he went and died for it. Why endeavor to love my city like Jesus did? So Lord, will we endeavor to love our city like you loved us and that you loved Jerusalem, that you came humbly but confidently and courageously in to give yourself. Lord, I don't know if it's going to cost me my life this week. If I, if I, got, if I got a bet, I, I bet it won't. But I want it to cost me something. I want something to be taken from me this week that somebody else might know because of that sacrifice, the love of God that's available to them. Let it be said of each of us who are marked as your children by the seal of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we want to sacrifice something this week, something that's costly, that someone else might know, the hope and glory of Jesus. May we lay down our lives. May uh, compassion overwhelm places where apathy and anger currently reign. And let us go to the places in the muck and the mire. Let us set down our personal freedoms in many regards that there might be greater community outcomes. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the meal that we're about to celebrate. Lord, we do want to celebrate. Hosanna, help. You're the only help that changes us. And we want to celebrate as your community, your your redeemed body, the goodness of God in the city. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.